I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. Russell Westbrook is off to Houston. It's going to be scary. Not for us. James Harden just caught a body here in Los Angeles. And Westbrook is on the freeway. What's up, guys? Welcome to this podcast. My name is Salman Ali, at Salman Ali NBA on Twitter. He's joined by Adam Spolane. Adam, how you doing, man? I'm good. I just voted. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when early voting stops in Texas, but I know where I voted. I was in and out in probably 10 minutes. Voter turnout is insane right now. <laughs> like I, the, the, the day I voted, the, pl- the place next to my house had like a two hour line. And from what I understand, that was not uncommon across the state. And I think the last, the, the last I checked, the numbers are like 95% turnout compared to 2016. So we're going to drive way past that this year. Yeah, and I know people make a big deal about wait times and things like that, but some of that is just it's the first day. And so everyone's going to go out and vote on the first day, so you're going to have big lines. Um, But I I do think one of the really good developments that we've had in this country over the last – you know, ever since I've been voting, which is now this is what my fourth or fifth presidential election, is that you do have early voting. And so you do have – you know, we basically have an entire month to vote, almost an entire month to vote. Uh, so if there, say, is a big wait the first day, you can wait a couple of days and, and go right back. So, you know, I, I know for me, I probably spent more time uh, filling out my ballot than I actually did waiting to fill out my ballot. So that's I think that's a cool development. Yeah. And as far as the state of Texas goes, like we need to get mail in ballots as a possibility to vote next year. Like we uh, like me personally, I would make it as easy as possible. You go even further, make Tuesday, make that Tuesday a national holiday. Because it is in other countries that vote. First of all, like we're the only country that votes on a Tuesday. Like everybody else has their election on a Saturday or like a Sunday. We have it on a Tuesday, and it's it's just it's just a little weird. Like we should have that day like cordoned off to vote. And um, yeah, make it as easy as possible. Like this is the most important thing you could do as a citizen. Uh, I, I don't know why we don't even go a step further than what we have gone. I mean. Most people, though, I mean, you say election day is on a Tuesday. Most people aren't going to vote on Tuesday. Most people right. have yeah. already voted before. So I, I know people say the whole you know, election day, national holiday, that's fine and all. But remember, it's not like you don't have other options. You do have early voting. So I, I do think that's one thing that people need to, to remember when, when you talk about some of this stuff. So uh, we have four topics I want to hit. Uh, and I want to start with the NBA restarting in, in December because – when when this first came out, I think everybody was a little shocked and taken back by this, and I just can't help but feel like it's too early. Like December twenty second is the date that they're throwing out. I'm not sure if the players union is going to accept it. I'm like you're basically trying to squeeze everything into a seven week period uh, before the season starts, and I'm just like, I'm not like you're talking about the draft, you're talking about free agency, you're talking about training camp. Like that's a lot of stuff to fit in. And the the season feels like it just ended. 
And I know, I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to get back into their old cycle, their old calendar, and they're trying to to save as much money as they can. And I understand that this is a business. I completely understand the financials of trying to preserve as much of the season as you possibly can. And I think they realized with coronavirus that you can't have fans in buildings the next year. There's just the projections are way too far out. And I don't think I think the NBA realized that they weren't going to make it to a point where they, they would have fans in buildings. So I understand that. I still think this is way too early. Um, yes and no. I, I do think it's important to get back on the normal calendar. And yeah, everything will be very condensed, but that's essentially what it was after the lockout. So you look, the the lockout in 2011, it ended on December 8th, and they believe they started the season on Christmas Day. So you're you're basically going under that same timetable. Uh, yes, the, the season did just end, but it really just ended for four teams. I mean, the Rockets were have been eliminated now for, what, a month and a half, maybe even longer than that at this point. So they will have not a normal offseason, but a relatively normal type of offseason. Um, and then they had the four months off before that. Uh, you have a good portion of NBA teams uh, haven't played since March. So, yeah, it's quick, but... I, I think that the the importance of getting back on a normal NBA schedule probably matters more than having a normal offseason for this year. I, I think that this is going to probably be not a throwaway type season, but a screwed up season because you're probably not going to have fans this year. So you just need to try and get it played, get it over with, and then get back to normal as soon as you can. Do you think they do this if we have like a star-studded free agent class for 2020? Because right now we have pretty much a high caliber role player class of free agents, but there's not really a top end free agent available. Yes, AD is technically going to become a free agent, but he's going to resign with the Lakers. And then after that, like the best free agent available is like, um, I, I don't even know, like Andre Drummond. Like it, there's, it, there's just not a high caliber free agent class available this year. And I wonder if they try to condense the free agency down to one week if we do have that high caliber free agent class. No, I don't necessarily think that plays into it because you look last year was obviously a massive free agent class and everyone of importance signed before free agency actually started. I mean, everybody basically agreed to their contracts before free agency actually opened. So I I don't think that plays into it at all. I I think that it's more, we got crushed by playing our postseason during the summer. We can't do that again. We thought maybe we could do that. We can't do that. It's just not going to work. It's not going to play out well for us. So we need to get this season started. We need to play as many games as we can. And then we need to end the season by the start of July. I think that's, I think that is their motivation for everything. I, I don't think that any free agents that, you know, may or may not become available uh, over the next couple of weeks. I don't think that plays into it at all. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be really interesting, especially that what we're, we're free agents is going to be like a week, right? Like if we, if they do this. Uh, yeah, it'll essentially be, so the draft is scheduled to be the 18th. Um, I think free agency would start maybe a day or two after that. And I believe the the date floated for the start of training camp is December 1st. So yeah, that's basically about 10 days. I think you will obviously see some players wait and not sign right away. You'll probably see some guys who just skip out on training camp altogether. Um, It's going to be quick, but it was quick after the lockout. So this isn't anything new. This isn't anything that, you know, it'll be different, obviously, for the guys that weren't around during the lockout. But for a lot of these guys, they were around nine years ago when when the lockout occurred. So they will understand, you know, what that, you know, 
just how quick that turnaround actually was. It's not going to be easy for anyone, but you know, this is just the way that they have to do it at this point. And I, I don't, I don't, for me, maybe December 22nd is, is a little early. Maybe you can push that back a week or so, but I, I don't think you can wait much longer than that. I think they need to try and get this season started as quick as possible. First of all, there's nothing else going on at this point. I mean, major league baseball is done. They they're able to keep their normal calendar. So right now the sports world, the sports calendar belongs to football at this point. And so the NBA needs to try and, you know, get back their territory as quick as they can. Yeah. And I think the NBA was really attracted by the idea of still having their Christmas day, right? Like that's their big, that's their big ratings day. Uh, they, st- during that lockout season, you, you referenced, like they started on Christmas day. And I think, I think that that's a, that's a big day for them. They, they don't want to miss that. Like, uh, obviously it would probably be a little bit more ideal if they start in January, but like, uh, I don't think the, the NBA wanted to miss Christmas Day. Well, it, it's not just the NBA. It's also ESPN and it's ABC and it's TNT. They want those days also because remember, they're paying a hefty, hefty price for NBA games. And Christmas Day has long been the biggest day really for NBA viewership during the regular season. And so they don't want to blow that. They, they want they want that window as, as much as they possibly can because I just want to double check. Christmas Day this year is on a Tuesday. Or excuse me, that was a couple of years ago. Let me see. Christmas Day this year is on a Friday. There's no football on Fridays. So this is their opportunity uh, to really retake their territory and retake the calendar for, for and really cash in on, on the big investment of NBA basketball. Right. And when we talked about the the free agent class i think people assume that i that i think the that free agent's going to be free agency's going to be boring and i i think quite the opposite i think we're going to have a pretty robust trade market uh and judging by some of the things we're going to talk about today like i think i think it's going it's, it just got even more insane like we're going to have a lot of high caliber trades uh i just looking at the landscape of the leagues there are a lot of teams that are an- antsy and i think that they need to make moves and i think that one week period is going to be absolutely nuts. And the draft is going to be completely nuts because I, I think there are going to be a lot of teams that are willing to trade out of this draft because it's not very good. So I think it's going to be completely nuts. I It's going to be that week is going to be nuts. And I, I do think that you're going, I think teams are probably already having discussions because this isn't like a lockout situation. You know, the players aren't locked out. So while I don't think they can have conversations with other teams legally, the teams are still able to talk to each other. And so I, I do think that a lot of groundwork is being laid for possible moves uh, coming up in the future. I think you're right. I think it's going to be a, a big market for trades. Uh, you're going to have teams that are going to be looking to get off of contracts based on their financial situations. Uh, you're going to have teams who have not been in the playoffs in a long time, like Atlanta, like Sacramento, like Phoenix. They're going to try and, and make a move as, as they try to to end these playoff droughts. Uh, so it's a fast it'll be a fascinating time that's for sure all right so let's talk let's talk about the reason i brought you on uh we have uh yeah the the past 24 hours have been insane for nba news and particularly the rockets it's been complete I, if you're a rockets fan i can't imagine the emotional ro- roller coaster this team has put you through uh not only in the past 24 hours but this offseason in general so let's just go in chronological order in terms of the way things start. I, I don't have a set rundown here because I want to go off the cup. Normally I have detailed points that I want to hit, but I, 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 I wrote last night about all this stuff and I just want to go, I, I just want to, you know, throw my scrambled thoughts out here. So let's go in chronological order. So Daryl Moore yesterday was hired by the Philadelphia 76ers in, 
a pretty shocking move, but at the same time, not so shocking in that the 76ers were courting him for quite a while. And I think uh, Tillman Fertitta kind of hinted at the idea that Daryl Morey wanted to work in the NBA on the East Coast uh, with that weird press conference he had with uh, like that handful of media members uh, in the city. And it was... Uh, it was very strange uh, th- that he would say that in the press in a press conference, and uh, I think immediately we thought of Philly as a possible landing spot. Uh, I actually texted someone literally the night before this happened, like, "You think you think Daryl goes to Philly?" And when I sent that text, I I was actually talking about next season because I don't know about you, but I actually took Daryl's word that he was going to take a gap year. Like, like let's let's start there. Like when. When Daryl stepped away from the organization, did you actually buy this idea that he was going to take a gap year? Um, not necessarily. I, I did buy the whole, you know, I, I want to spend more time with the family type thing, but I didn't necessarily think, well, he's going to take a gap year. Um, I, I think that was that was sort of tough to read. Um, it would not have surprised me if he would have just taken a year off based on what you know he went through last year with the whole China thing and the fact that there really weren't any openings at the time. So that's the only reason why I thought, okay, a gap year sort of makes sense. But if you would have told me, you know, back then that he winds up getting a job, uh, you know, two weeks later, I wouldn't have been surprised. I don't think. For the sake of this podcast, let's assume that Daryl Morey was acting in fa- in good faith when he said that, right? Let's just assume that he was completely planning to take a year off with his kids who were taking academic years off, uh, co- both college-age children. Um, let- let's assume that he was telling the truth. So I think this was a damning indictment of ownership in Houston. And the reason for that is if he was taking if he was taking a year off, the fact that it took two weeks to convince him to, to scrap those plans and come back into the NBA, screamed that he wasn't happy in his current situation or that he could have been convinced to stay. And the fact that Houston could not convince a known elite talent like Daryl Morey to stay on top of Mike D'Antoni not uh, not being convinced to stay, the fact that they flubbed that, is it's a huge indictment of ownership. I don't even care if they nailed this offseason. I don't even care if Raphael Stone is like the best general manager ever and Steven Silas is the best coach ever. Like that to me is a damning indictment of the organization. Um I, I think clearly it looks bad. Um really everything has looked bad. I think it's worse though when you consider that A, they paid him off. I mean, remember he had just signed a five year extension and they gave him a lot of that money. And so now they aren't going to get any compensation for him. So by you know coming to a, essentially a, a buyout agreement with them, they lose any opportunity of getting any compensation for him. And he's a huge asset. I mean, I, I guarantee you there are teams that would have given up a real asset to bring in Daryl Morey to run their basketball operations office. 100%. And they basically punted on that opportunity. So somebody will have to explain to me why uh, they did that. And I don't think that they're going to have a good reason other than I think they thought that Daryl was serious about wanting to take a year off. But even still, if you wanted to take a year off, he was under contract. Why, why are you why are you paying him off and why are you letting him out of that obligation? Um, you could have just kept him on as almost like a consultant, which sounded like what they were going to do at least through the end of this month. And they didn't do that. So it uh, to me, that's worse than, you know, some of the optics of him leaving and then taking another job two weeks later. So the optics were even stranger because, I mean, you're talking about one of the best general managers in the league 
being convinced to go to another title contender in a big market. It's not like Houston's an unattractive market. Like Houston, yeah, yeah, Philadelphia is a bigger media market, right? Like it's fourth compared to seventh. It's bigger, but it's not that much bigger. It's an attractive place to live for both, uh, for free agents across the league. Uh, and the fact that Maury lived here for 14 years, was with the organization, signed multiple contracts, planted down roots with his family, decided to leave abruptly. That to me suggests that whatever working relationship he had with Tillman Fertitta was not necessarily as healthy as we, or I'm not going to say we all assumed that, that uh, they painted it to be. I I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know what they thought. I I, I don't know the relationship with that. I I just, all I know is Tillman did not hire Daryl to begin with. Um, And you saw kind of a couple disappointing seasons uh, follow the really good year where they won 65 games and almost won the Western conference. They underachieved the last couple of years. They did not spend, you know, I I do wonder if the inability to spend the money that maybe Daryl wanted to spend, um, factored into that. I mean, they can talk all they want about how, you know, uh, I want to pay the luxury tax. I'm willing to pay the luxury tax. The fact is that they never paid the luxury tax. Uh, so you do wonder if that played into it where uh, Daryl felt like his hands were tied at, at you know, at certain points. Um, and then there's the Westbrook, the Westbrook Chris Paul trade. I, I, I don't think anyone will ever know 100% whose idea that was and who was really the driving force around it. Uh, I will tell you, uh, Tim McMahon went on Zach Lowe's podcast after Daryl left and said that, no, this was ownership and it was James Harden who were really the driving forces behind that. And then Tim McMahon went on Woj's podcast yesterday and said that Daryl called him and pushed back on that and said that he was fully on board with the Westbrook trade. So I don't think we'll ever really know the answer to that and to the just the relationship that Maury and Tillman actually had and how maybe things were impacted with Mike D'Antoni, I just don't think we'll ever know. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier. Like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the most important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more qualified candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through December 31st. All right, football is back in full swing. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division, and championship futures all day, every day. 
Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at BetOnline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. So I'm glad you mentioned the Westbrook trade because you and I actually did that podcast in the airport when that trade happened. And I think I said at the time, word for word, this does not feel like a Maury trade to me. Like it, it it, 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 It is a Maury trade in that he's trading for a star, right? But it does not sound like a Maury trade to me that he would just give up on Chris Paul like this. And I... You know, I've I've said multiple times since then that you know we'll never. You're right. We'll never know uh, the process of that trade. I, I I do think that Maury wasn't lying and that it was collaborative and that uh, there were multiple voices involved. But where I end up on this is I can't help but shake the feeling that Maury was not the loudest person in the room. Like he was not the loudest voice in the room. I can't help but shake that feeling, and the. As far as what that means for the Rockets, I don't know. But for the past 13 years, Maury has been the loudest voice in the room. And I think for that specific trade, I don't think he was. Well, for when you look at it for the first, what, 11, 12 years that he was the Rockets GM, he was basically given full autonomy from Les Alexander. And he ran that he ran that shop the way that he wanted to. And Les pretty much would stay out of the way. Les would get involved with some of the coaching stuff. But for the most part, when it came to the front office stuff and, and it came to basketball operations, Les would stay out of the way. And it kind of seemed like Tillman Fertitta and you know his crew, they started to get a little bit more involved. And they saw what had happened um, during you know the postseason and the season in, in 2019. And then you get James Harden involved, and, and Harden clearly wanted Westbrook over Paul. So that probably played into it a little bit. And I'm sure Daryl probably felt like his power had diminished a little bit. That, and that can't be easy for someone who um, took the job under less, worked under less for all those years, and now here's this new guy, and he's rocking the boat a little bit. So those circumstances, I imagine, were a little bit different, and you have to get used to that a little bit. So I, I'm, I'm glad you, you, you brought this up because – I, I said a couple of weeks ago, or actually by this point, it might be a couple months ago, that from everything I've observed, uh, Tillman was a little bit more hands off than Leslie Alexander. Like Leslie Alexander was always asked questions, was always around the organization. We always saw him uh, around, and uh, T- Tillman Fertitta, I think, was less involved, and I think Patrick Fertitta was a little bit more involved in, in that in that sense with the team. Like he was probably like the liaison to the, to the team, uh, to, to, for, to Tillman. And that was a little strange, but, but, but in general, I think, uh, their approaches were very different. And I, I do believe that when Tillman bought the team, that probably shook Maury a little bit. Like if you go back to the reporting at the time, the fact that Leslie Alexander was willing to sell the team, it shook a lot of people. It was shocking. Like we hadn't heard murmurs of it at, at all. Apparently, uh, he had just told Maury and and Tad Brown, like literally spur of the moment, like yeah, I want to sell the team. And you, I, I can't help but shake the feeling that Maury was thrown off by that. And like like Maury liked working for Les. Like we we know this. Like like Les was the guy who gave him his first shot. Les was the guy who believed in analytics. Les was the guy who, um, I mean, he brought him into the league. Like, not brought him into the league in a literal sense, right? Like, Maury was already in the league, but he, he, he gave him, his, yeah, he elevated him. He, he gave him his first chance, and he was the. He always asked questions. He he always uh, 
was very involved with the team and 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 may, I can't help but shake the feeling that the different approach that Tillman took and the fact that it was a different person and I don't know I I I I think I I can't ownership definitely played a part in this decision I think Les Alexander was far more involved than people realize just because he's not a very public person so right. you see him at games but he's not the type of guy who would go and talk to reporters. He's not, he's not going on CNBC every week. You know, he, he does things very quietly, but he was very much involved uh, more than people realize the him selling the team was shocking. And I remember, I believe there was a press release sent out. It was, it was July of um, July of 2017. And the Rockets were basically sent out something saying there's going to be a press conference for a big announcement. It was going to be a surprise, right? Like the, the, yeah. no, nobody knew what it was. And I remember people asking me what it might be. And I had no idea. I, I wasn't even in Houston at the time. And people, somebody suggested, well, maybe they're going to announce their Jersey sponsorship. That's what I thought. That's what I, th- I thought this was going to be a Jersey announcement. And when I saw that, 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 that Les was going to sell the team, I was absolutely floored by the whole thing. Just 100% floored by it. Um, and then the fact that Tillman bought the team was probably just as shocking because I remember Tillman came out that day and said, I want to buy the team. And I talked to some people who said, there's no shot. Like he, he just doesn't have the money to be able to do that. Um, he's you know been a very bombastic type guy. He's a personality. Uh, he has his own TV show, his own reality TV show. So I, I didn't take it seriously that he would actually wind up buying the team. And lo and behold, he did, you know, a couple months later. So yeah, I think it was, it was a huge, huge change when you go from the kind of the quiet, not public Les Alexander to now the very out front Tillman Fertitta and you bring in the whole family in the mix. That's a big change. And that's not an easy change for someone who was used to how the organization ran for over a decade before that. So yeah, I can see that a hundred percent. Yeah. And if you look at just how the organization has changed in Les Alexander's, I mean, in Tillman Fertitta's reign, like uh, Daryl Morey left, Garrison Rosas left, Monty McNair left, Brett Johnson obviously passed away tragically. Mike D'Antoni left, Jeff Bizdelic left. Like, uh, that's just a lot of top-notch talent that the organization lost in three years. I mean, I, I can't help but feel like Maury looked around and it's like, wait, hold on. This is not the job that I signed up for. Everybody's just leaving left and right. We have a new owner and the things aren't the same. Like, this is not the job I signed up for in 2007. I, it's it's just, this is now very much uh, Tillman Fertitta's team, right? Like, Rafael Stone was his guy in the front office, right? Like he was very much, he played a big part in the selling of the team to Tillman Fertitta uh, in those negotiations. And the fact that he got the job right away was not shocking. He's a, he's a sharp guy, but this is, you look around at the organization and it just, it's completely different from where it was three years ago. Like completely different that they have been drained for talent and they have been injected with Tillman. And however you want to feel about that, this is you tweeted it like a, a week ago. This is very much Tillman Fertitta's team now. Oh, 100%. And, um, you know, you brought up Patrick, and this is something that I've talked about, you know, you know, between us privately. Patrick is very involved. And um, Patrick's at practice. Patrick's on the team playing quite a bit. We see him all the time at practice, yes. yeah. He, he is very out front. 
he he doesn't really you know he's not going to talk he doesn't talk publicly, but he is very he is very much around that team. Uh, and I, I do think that his power is growing within the organization. I, I think that will certainly continue as he gets older. I mean, he's still a kid. He's 25, 26 years old. So, you know, that's only going to grow. And, and you do wonder if uh, that scares some people off, that the son of the owner is now all of a sudden very, is very high profile within the organization. So I'm curious as to how that goes uh, in the future. But yeah, you're right. I mean, they've lost, and it's not just the last three years. It's really the last 18 months. All those guys that you ran down that have left, they've all left really within the last 18 months. Um, so it, it is very much a different organization than what we saw three years ago, both on the floor and off. Yeah. And the Patrick Vertita stuff is interesting because like, I think Tillman Vertita, like I, I, we, we said earlier, like I, I think Tillman Vertita is hands off, but I think Patrick Vertita is hands on. Like, and this is not unusual among NBA teams. Like you, you see this with Golden State, right? Like they have a very much a, the ownership kind of stays away, but there's at least one person in the organization at least standing by. And Patrick Fertitta is that guy, but usually that guy is not 25 years old. Usually that guy is much older, right? Uh, that's why it's so unusual. And um, yeah, it's it's so strange. I, I, I look at the organization now from where it was when, uh, when when Daryl got hired, it's completely different, and I I can't help but feel like that was part of the decision making with Daryl. Like, it, it, and the China stuff too. Like, when when Tillman Fertitta came out on Twitter and proclaimed that the Rockets weren't a quote unquote political organization, basically undercutting Daryl Morey. I mean, as a human on a human level, if you're Morey can't doesn't that hurt like doesn't that feel like your ownership is kind of throwing you under the bus a little bit kind of but everyone everyone would have reacted i think the same way i i don't think that uh but in, in uh, such a public forum though like i i if it were me or if, if i was like an nba owner i would have i would have handled that behind closed doors and publicly i might have released released a statement but i wouldn't have thrown i wouldn't have thrown daryl under the bus like that he even he even tagged daryl in that tweet I think that he knew how, what, what that, what that tweet was going to do. I think that they understood that that was a really, I, 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 I don't like to say dumb thing to tweet because I don't think it was a dumb thing to tweet, but I, I think that they understood that this was going to be really kind of a, an earth moving type decision that Daryl made to hit send on that tweet. And I think that Tillman Fertitta knew that. And I think he wanted to distance the organization as quickly as he possibly could because he knew the financial fallout that would come from it. And lo and behold, he was right. I mean, there is there was a huge financial fallout, not only for the Rockets, but for the NBA as a whole. So uh, Tillman did what he had to do as a businessman. And basically the league did the exact same thing with it. So I, I imagine that Daryl was probably hurt that no one seemed to have his back, but I don't think that should be unexpected. And really, nobody had Daryl's back on that. I mean, can you think of anyone who said, yeah, Daryl, thanks for thanks for doing that. You were right in doing that. I agree with you 100%. I don't think there was a single soul. One guy, one guy, Masai Ujiri. That's the only guy that had Daryl's back. So that's it. So I'm talking about Rockets players. We asked Rockets players that very question, and none of them would, would had Daryl's back on that whole thing. And so I do think that that... We talk about all the reasons for why this was a difficult year for him. I think the fact that no Rockets player defended Daryl Morey after that, 
I think that probably weighed on him a lot. And just the fact that, you know, you had LeBron James speaking out about Daryl Morey. That's the first time I think LeBron James has probably ever mentioned Daryl Morey's name before uh, in a public forum was about that tweet. And I, I think that probably weighed on him too. But yeah, I think that it should have been a surprise that the organization did not have his back on that. And I, I feel like I'm probably talking in circles and we're getting off topic a little bit of what you want to no, talk about. I mean, th- 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 this is very much on topic. We're talking about Daryl Morey and why he might have left. And th- I think the China stuff was definitely part of this. Oh, I think that Daryl didn't really do any sort of a formal media availability from that tweet, which w- was in October, until they were about to leave for the bubble. So that was so they left for the bubble in July. The tweet was in October. So you do that's what nine months that he went without talking to reporters, and they didn't do any sort of a formal press conference with him after the Covington Capella trade. I mean, can you imagine that the general manager of the team did not hold any sort of media availability after they traded a starter for another starter? He still hadn't answered. A, he has not answered a single question about it, and we're it's been over a year. I mean, so this has been over a year. I imagine that whenever he gets introduced in Philadelphia, he will not be asked. He will either not be asked a question about it, or he will refuse to answer a question about it. So that's how much you know. That that's how big this whole thing was, and how big the fallout was from it is that it's almost a year after. It's it's over a year after, and no one has said a word about it. Yeah, and you know, we talked about how quickly Tillman reacted. Like I can't. I can't help but feel like Tillman's phone blew up after that oh, with yeah. all, with with all these business. Uh, and, and, and it was the middle of the night too. Don't forget, right? Because like it, it, there was a, there was a gap there. By the way, it was it was it might have been like an hour, might have been it might have been two hours, but there was a little bit of a gap there. And I can't help in that gap. Tad Brown and and uh, and Tillman Fertitta were just getting bombasted by their Chinese partners, and I I. I, I I, I think I think that was a re- that was his reaction, and I think that he reacted poorly. I think I, it's just my opinion. I think he, like by by being like that informal about it, blatantly throwing your guy under the bus. Like I I, I understand that you know maybe you want to distance yourself from Daryl a little bit, but I I can't help but feel like that's not the forum. That's not the way to do it. I don't think he had a choice. I'll be honest with you. I don't think he had a choice. Just. Right there, they were. They knew that they were going to start hemorrhaging money, and they needed to try and save face as much as they could. Uh, I don't think that any of us understood what that was going to do to them. And, and I will say, you know, our friend Yu Fu, um, he knew, he knew yeah, right away. He knew right away. I, we've had this conversation with him that you know he's just sitting at home and he saw that and he told us, man, this thing is going to blow up, and it did to the point where you know he couldn't even use the word rockets in in any of of his reporting from China. He had to or to China. He had to refer to them as the red team. So um, that I, I think that people who know the situation better than we do, because I didn't know that situation at all. And I didn't know the fallout that would come of that. And then you see the tweet from Tillman and then you start to look into it a little further. And, and I completely understood why Tillman Fertitta did what he did to try and stop the bleeding as quickly as he could. A lot of people lost their job after that tweet. Like just point blank. A lot of people, not only just covering, covering this team, but covering a lot of teams across the NBA, a lot of people lost their job. And, and, a, lot, and a lot of people lost a ton of money. Just players right. on the Rockets team 
themselves lost a lot of money. I mean, James Harden was in China doing a promotional tour um, last offseason, and that was basically off limits for him. I mean, he closed off a lot of he closed off a lot of uh, financial opportunities for his own players, plus other players from around the league. And he put the Lakers and Nets. Remember, they were in China uh, to play a couple of exhibition games, and that was a very uncomfortable situation. Uh, and and I know for a fact that there were players on those teams that lost a ton of money on that trip. So it's it was a really bad situation for everyone in the league. Could it have been handled better? Probably, but I don't think that anyone knew exactly how to handle it and knew what to expect from that sort of a situation because we've never seen anything like that before. Yeah, and it became a distraction in arena. Like, not only were we asking questions about it, but like, like the, the Rockets were openly like removing Chinese logos on their court. And uh, at, at games, during during games, you would see uh, like fans come to the arena with signs in support of Daryl Moore. Like it became a thing. It became a little bit of a distraction, at least for a short period of time. It faded a little bit as the season went on, although not completely. It was, some of it was still there, but it, it became a bit of a sideshow with the Rockets. Well, and, and it turned the league into essentially a political football where um, you have United States senators uh, sending out press releases about how the NBA won't ba- how the NBA won't you know say anything against the Chinese government for fear of the reprisal and and just the money that it, it would cost the league. So um, there there is fallout that I don't even think that we can even begin to imagine of how much money it cost the league, how much of a headache it turned into the league, um, and you know Daryl had to it changed his life. I mean, um, I think that there's been some reporting on how uh, all of his social media got hacked. Uh, he, you know, there was a lot that went into that whole thing. So I felt bad for him at the time because what he did, you know, was an honorable thing to do, you know, to stand up for people who, for basic human rights, that's an honorable thing to do, but it hurt, it hurt a lot of people in the process. Yeah. That's all. That's always the tricky thing with the NBA getting so involved in China, right? They just, there's just a ton of human rights violations there. And, and in all sports too. There's a story, right. about the, the, uh, a soccer player for Arsenal uh, who who did something similar and he has basically been ex out of out of China as well and the Arsenal Football Club in the Premier League has had to deal with the same sort of fallout we just haven't really heard about it over here yeah all industries like right Hollywood is heavily in bed with China right like they 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 sponsor a lot of these movies uh i think even in esports like there there was an incident where some guy won a contest and he he did something similar like he said something about China Lost all of his prize money overnight. Yeah, it's it, it's you don't go. It's not a situation that you really want to mess with, regardless of you know how right you are and, and just you know just what's in your heart because um, it's it's dangerous. It's it's really really dangerous to go down that road. And I think people are starting to understand just the type of power that China and the Chinese government hold over American and, and Western entities. Um, so let's, let's talk about Steven Silas, uh, because that's the other thing I wanted to talk about. So Steven Silas got hired by the Rockets, like shortly after, like a few hours after Daryl Morey got hired by the Sixers. Uh, what do you think of the hire? Like, you know, first time head coach, long time assistant for 20 years in the NBA, uh, was re- just recently Rick Carlisle's assist top assistant. What, what was your feel of the hire? I thought it was interesting. I'm I'm very fascinated that you know this was the guy who was the finalist behind D'Antoni four years ago, and here we are in 2020, and basically 
everyone involved in the process of hiring D'Antoni is now gone. And yet this guy was still right at the top of the mix. So it shows you the type of appeal that he had, uh, not just with the previous Rockets regime, but with the current one. Um, Everything you hear about him is a positive. I mean, you really don't know about a guy until he actually becomes a head coach. And so it's hard to base anything that we have seen of him in Golden State or in Charlotte or in Dallas the last couple of years, because moving from one chair to the next, that's that's a really big jump. Uh, But I don't think I've heard a negative word said about the guy um, over going back to not only this, to the process this year, but to the process four years ago. So uh, I, I think that it was probably the uh, of the guys that they interviewed, of the guys who were the finalists, I think he was probably the strongest candidate. Yeah, this move surprised me, right? Because I, I, I did not think that Steven Silas was – going to be the coach. Like I I thought they were going to pick a coach, a head coach with some experience because that's usually what teams in the situation do, right? Like when, when you're when you're a team trying to win a championship, normally you're you're very reluctant to pick a first-time head coach to fill in those shoes. And because it, it's risky, it's it's always risky. Like right, T- teams remember the Nick Nurses and the Bra- and the Brad Stevens, right? But first, I don't think people remember like Brad Stevens was hired when the Celtics were still a young team with no real you know idea of contendership. Uh, Nick Nurse was really the only recent example you can think of a team taking a chance like that. And there are a ton of examples of teams taking chances like that with good teams that haven't worked out. So the, it's it's always risky when you go with the first time head coach, but. The Rockets are going to surround him with a lot of veteran talent. They're probably going to bring John Lucas back. A lot of their coaching staff is going to return, right? Like I, I have a feeling Matt Brazze is going to return, and I have a feeling Brett Gunning is, is going to return. And they're, they're going to try and mitigate the, the downside risk in hiring a first-time head coach by really surrounding him with a lot of you know grizzled assistants. And I think when you're talking about making that transition, like it helps that he has 20 years of experience, right? Like like that's that's what's different from Silas and most other assistants. He has more experience than just about any assistant coach in the NBA. And uh, also, uh, they're they're going to try and mitigate some of that risk by hiring some of these head coaches. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what holdovers return from D'Antoni's staff, because when you when you look at it, you know, Brett Gunning, uh, Elston Turner, um, um, these guys were, uh, yeah, they were, and Matt Brazze as well, as you mentioned, um, they've been on the Rockets staff, but they were brought in under, you know, D'Antoni either brought them in or Daryl Morey brought them in, and now all of them are gone. So I, I am interested to see uh, if any of these guys are able to stay on. Uh, I think Lucas is probably a good possibility when you consider just how popular he is uh, within um, the Rockets locker room. And, but I don't and, know about and his relationship with Raphael Stone too matters. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know what will happen with Gunning, with Braze, with uh, and, and with Turner, just because you have a a coach in in Steven Silas. There, it sounds like it's going to be Jeff Hornacek and and Nate McMillan on the staff, and then you know you don't have room for for many more guys after that. So I'm I'm very curious to see what direction they go, and does Steven Silas want to go with someone who he's frankly a little more familiar with? than the guys that the Rockets already have under their employment. It, it helps that he's ha- he has like a ton of relationships across the league, right? Because he's been in the league for so long. I can't can't stress that enough. Like he was he was he, he was brought in the league in the late 90s, right? Uh, and uh, uh, it, as soon as he was hired, you, you saw people across the league 
congratulating him and the Rockets for making this hire, particularly Rick Carlisle, which is big praise. When a guy like Rick Carlisle says this was a great hire, I mean, you can't get a bit, a better checkoff than that, right? And um, it's interesting because, like I said after the playoffs, that Houston's biggest problem, and I, and I wrote about this, like their crunch time offense in the postseason these past three years has been pretty mediocre. And last last postseason, it was pretty awful. And I think they've gotten a little predictable. Like they, they, as time went on, they went away from pick and roll and they, they doubled down on isolation basketball because it worked, right? A, a, a spaced floor around James Harden uh, and him isolating at the top of the key is efficient for uh, an 82 game season. I'm not sure if it's efficient at the highest levels of the playoffs when teams can scheme for you over and over and over again and they see you over and over and over again. And I think, um, I think it, it kind of reached its ceiling, and I thought whoever the whoever was going to be the head coach this this season, they had to figure that out, and they had to add some more dynamism to Houston's offense, ball movement, player movement, and I think uh, Silas is a really creative guy in terms of like his offensive philosophies. At least that's that's what we hear about him, right? Like he like he's he's this uh, creative thinker, out of the box thinker, and th- that he presented some of that stuff in his interview process, and I think uh, I think he he has a big job in front of him. Few. First-time head coaches get their start on a team this good. So he has to figure out a lot of stuff for them, and uh, he has to command the respect of the players in that locker room. I suspect he does uh, have the sign-off for the players in that locker room because otherwise they don't make this hire, right? If James Harden doesn't sign off on this, they don't make this hire. So I suspect that uh, he's already reached out, he's already talked to them, but he needs that buy-in right away, and he needs to figure some some creative stuff out with that offense. And I think he's being a little bit underrated defensively because he's been under some awesome defensive head, defensive coaches in, in Rick Carlisle, Steve Clifford, uh, his dad Paul Silas, Larry Brown. Like these are really good defensive coaches. So I think he's being a little bit uh, underrated there. Uh, but again, with, with as with all first-time head coaches, we're all guessing until we see him. No, and there there is some reporting that uh, that he did meet with you know the Rockets' key players over Zoom over the last few days. So and, and they basically gave the sign off uh, on this hire. Uh, you bring up the creativity in the Rockets' offense. I don't necessarily think that's the fault of D'Antoni or no, you know, no. But but whoever it is, they they just need more creativity. But I, I don't think that's on the coach. Is my point. I think that's on the players to actually be willing to. You know, here's this creative offense that we want to try out. You actually have to execute it. And that's going to come with moving without the basketball, cutting, you know, little things like that. And the Rockets' best players, Harden or James Harden and, and Russell Westbrook, haven't exactly been the best at doing that. And you'll see when Harden gives up the basketball, he just kind of hangs around the three-point line. And so at some point, he is going to have to buy into, all right, I don't have the ball, but I need to make myself a threat on another part of the floor because when I'm moving without the basketball, I'm a threat and there's going to be a lot of attention paid to me and that will help open things up for other guys and that will help our offense. So it's going to take a buy-in from everyone involved that we're going to run this offense and we have to be able to execute everything, which means that you need 100% buy-in from everyone. And that was one thing that James Harden said after, um, after the Lakers series was that, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. Now, it's one thing to say that, but it's another thing to do that. And we've been hearing them say 
we need to defend at a high level for 48 minutes. Well, we haven't nec- we've, we've, we've heard them say that. We haven't always seen them do that. Now, when it comes to moving without the basketball, doing the little things on offense to have a better offense, especially in crunch time, they can say whatever they want to say. But you need to actually see them do that and execute whatever plan that they have because you really have not seen that over the last couple of years. And the point you raised about their defense is pretty important, right? The past two years, they've been middle of the pack defensively. And that, that's probably the biggest area where they can improve, right? And I think uh, when you when you look at the assistants they're bringing in, you feel a little bit more comforted by, you know, these are these are guys who, uh, who have been around the league for a while. Nate McMillan has run some really strong defenses. And listen, Houston's best years have come when um, they were elite defensively, right? Like tw- 2015, when they made it to the Western Conference Finals and uh, against the Warriors that first time, 2018 when they when they nearly beat the Warriors in the Western Conference Finals, right? Like th- those are years where the Rockets were top ten defense, and it's not a coincidence. I, I think I think they when the when they get that stuff together, they're really hard to beat. So you know that's going to be something that he has to solve. And you know this off season, they they have to make the right signings, right? Like they, like I they they can't make trades, right? Like in terms of like. Players they have to move, they're just really limited in what they can do on the trade market. So they have to nail their signings. It's going to be a really competitive free agent market because all these guys are role players and everybody has a mid-level exception. So, you know, you're you're competing for guys with the same tools in your tool chest. So, you know, I it's going to be tough. Like Houston has to get really creative with their offices. And, and let me say this. Like we talked about how letting Daryl and Mike D'Antoni walk is an indictment on ownership. At this point, if you're a fan of the team, you don't really have a, a trust in that in that ownership, right? You don't have a trust with the, with the Rockets. Like this is a new regime. It's not Daryl Morey. It's not Mike D'Antoni. It's a brand new faces. You as an organization, you have to rebuild that trust. The biggest thing you can do to rebuild that trust is pay the damn luxury tax because y- your fans owe that. James Harden is owed that. Like he's in the prime of his career. Uh, and you cannot be wasting it by playing these games by duck- ducking the tax every trade deadline or not using your mid-level exception. If you're Houston, you have to use every tool in your tool, ch- your tool chest to improve the team. Like you have to spend at the minimum your taxpayer mid-level exception and pay the luxury tax. I think that's the biggest question I have remaining for Houston this offseason. I think that I think in in terms of rebuilding that faith with with the fan base, I think that's the biggest thing you could possibly do to get over the hump. Well, it's, it's pretty much impossible for them to not pay the tax unless they start just trading off guys at this point. But I wrote about this uh, earlier in the week. Whatever the luxury tax number comes in at is going to be wildly important for what they're able to do this offseason. Because right now, they are locked in at about $130, $131 million. If the luxury tax number is 132 then they are hard capped at 138 if they dip into that mid-level exception. If the luxury tax goes to 139, which is what it was projected at um, in January before the pandemic and before some of the other stuff, then they are hard capped at 145 if they go into the mid-level exception. So obviously that's going to be a huge number for how they can improve. Austin Rivers will be someone to look at because first of all, they need Austin Rivers on the team. Um, He has a player's option for the minimum, which he will obviously decline. They don't have full bird rights on him, but they have early bird rights. So they can go to about $8 million on him uh, for next season if they choose to. And frankly, this kind of gets into the Iman Shumpert situation from a year ago where they let Iman Shumpert go. They lo- Not only do they lose the player, but they lose the contract. 
So I think that they need Rivers, but if anything, they need that $8 million contract, which would help them in the trade market when you get towards the deadline, if they decide that, you know, Rivers is a luxury and we don't necessarily need him. So what they do with Austin Rivers is going to tell a lot about, you know, just the direction that they are headed to financially this season. Yeah, and, you know, which mid-level exception they have to spend is going to be pretty key in terms of the players you can get, right? Like, Because there's a big difference between that 5.7 taxpayer mid-level exception and that 9 million mid-level exception, right? So if they if they choose to spend that 9 million, like you can, you open up just an array of options in oh, terms yeah, that, of the players that, you can get. You can get real players for 9 million. Right, yeah. And, and you can sign them to multi-year deals, which is pretty yeah. big. Yeah, and you can sign one guy or you can split that up to get multiple guys. I remember they, they got PJ Tucker with the mid level. So that obviously turned out to be a big boon for them. And they were able to sign him to a multi-year deal. And so when you look at how little cap space there's going to be this off season, um, that mid level is going to be absolutely huge. They'll be, you know, the Lakers are, are going to be in that same boat, but they're going to need that. They need that luxury tax number to come in at one thirty nine. Um, if that luxury tax number comes in at one thirty two then they're going to be really hard-pressed to imp- – I mean, they'll be able to improve the team, but it's going to be very, very difficult. So you know, whenever the numbers do come out, if that luxury tax number is 139, that gives the Rockets a much better chance to compete next year than if it comes in at 132. The, there, there's no excuses at this point, right? Like, like if you're if you're Houston, like the, we've heard this talk about how oh we're trying to not pay the repeater tax at this point. Well, listen, you're you're set up in a situation to where your contracts line up and you don't have to pay the repeater tax if you really if you really don't want to in three years, right? So at this point, it's put up or shut up. And I, I can't think of a, a more critical offseason for the Rockets in the past 10 years than this one. Yeah, I mean, for sure. You have your best players are all 30 years old or, or older. I mean, that's that's the point that they're at. James Harden is, what, he's 31 now. Russell Westbrook is about to turn 32. P.J. Tucker is 35. That's another decision that they have to make about um, his contract moving forward. Eric Gordon is 31 years old. You know, your four best players are over the age of 30. You can't screw around anymore. If you are serious about about actually winning a championship, you're going to have to spend the right. You're going to have to spend the money to do it. And so far, you know, like you said, Tillman can say that he's all about it and he's, you know, more than you know, fine going into the luxury tax. But I wrote about this when the Lakers series ended. Everything that he has done, every move that they have made the last few years, does not indicate that they are serious about going into the luxury tax or actually spending the amount of money to get the most out of they can with the roster that they have because they just haven't done it. So at some point, you know, it's it's got to stop being talk. They actually have to do it. And I'm curious to see if they go through with it. The fan base doesn't believe. <laughs> I can tell you one thing. The fan base does not believe in this ownership group. Right. Um, and so he's going to have to prove some people wrong. And he's got to prove people wrong during a pandemic when his business isn't exactly going strong right now. And when the organization is going to be hard pressed to make money over this next year, when you consider that it is unlikely that you will have fans for either the whole year or part of the year. I, I know for sure it is very unlikely that Toyota center is ever filled up for the 2020, 2021 season. Yeah, he can do as many power lunches as he want, right? Is, is that what it's called? That CNBC show that he gets on every week? I I, I don't watch it, so I, yeah, I'm, yeah. Whatever that whatever that show is, he can do a million of those interviews all he wants. But talk is cheap. You're right. He has to just do it. Just do it. And 
the, the fan base has been given no reason to trust him. So I, I don't blame them for at this point, especially with with you know just letting these guys walk away. As as I said, like you, they've given they've been given no reason to trust the organization. So the only the only thing you can do to try and rebuild that trust is pay the tax. Um, listen, Adam, this is really fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can we follow you on Twitter and read your work? Uh, at Adam Spillane. Sorry, I'm losing my voice here towards the end of this. Um, and then just check out SportsRadio610.com. Uh, I know we'll have some Astro stuff up there. I know that you're still probably heartbroken over. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, it was rough. It was rough. So, so I hope you're doing better uh, from that. I've got a couple things in the works there. Uh, I did write about the four big questions that uh, or the four big decisions that the Rockets either have to make or the decisions that will be made for them uh, when you get into the offseason. We talked about a couple of them. Um, so I think that's so that's something to look for on there. By the way, like, what, what's this thing about doing an interview without your mask on? Like, you're a foot away from the guy. The the the, the reporter is wearing a mask. You you can't bother to to put the mask on that's in your pocket. Like, that, that's ridiculous. That's and, and that that that's just that's just the surface level stuff. Like, there's a bunch of stuff the MLB did not handle right in that closing uh in that closing stretch. Um, I, I can't speak to you know. Obviously, I saw it. It might have just been really difficult to hear because, you know, we saw interviews done um, during the NBA bubble, but there are no fans there. So you, you did have fans at the World Series. So maybe that made it tougher to hear without the mask on. Uh, I do know the fact that uh, I believe it was Tom Verducci on the field. He was part of that tier that was getting tested every single day. So I do think that that's a little bit why uh, he could get away with it. But no, I'm not, I'm not going to excuse it. But I do think that there there is a little bit of context, though, with some of that. Yeah, it, 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 and again, that's just the surface level stuff. Like, th- there's a lot of stuff to dig into there, but whatever. Like, we're not going to get into that. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Give us five stars on iTunes because it helps other people find the show. And yeah, guys, good night.